0: Shalom, welcome back to Scripture Central, the former Book of Mormon Central. We're here in Come Follow Me today to talk about the book of Revelation. I'm Lynn Hilton Wilson, and I love this book. It is a sign of God's covenant. We see how faithful Jesus is as not only our Savior and our Redeemer, but the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This book describes the history of the world, and it is so important to our day and age. And one reason that I feel so strongly about it is because the Lord revealed the keys to how to unlock this treasure. It's usually referred to as the apocalypse and it's it, it's a p- part of apocalyptic literature and it's hard to understand, but we have so many keys to understand it. And the first and foremost is when Joseph Smith was going through the Bible, his translation, he comes to these chapters and he asks questions and the Lord gives him answers. And they're recorded in section 77 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And that is our greatest key to understand it. We also have the understanding the ancient numerology and the symbolism, the Old Testament patterns, the plan of salvation, the temple initiated, especially when we realize that the early Christians had been washed and anointed. similar to the priests of the Aaronic priesthood in the Old Testament. We hear descriptions in some of the 40-day literature about the Christians who are going through the same things. We know the Christians are having bathrooms for the dead and washings and anointings and prayer circles. And so I feel like those who are temple initiated can understand this text better as well. The last thing I want to mention is the spirit of revelation. You have to pray. We have to have the Lord's help on this study. I think the best guide to any scripture study is praying first. But in this book, you're praying for understanding as well. I feel pretty strongly that when we look at numbers and what is important in numbers is not what fits into our culture. Because right now, number six is a perfect number in math. But in the ancient world, number seven meant whole and complete especially in the Judaic or the Israelite community, because that was the number chosen for the periods of time to divide the creation. And so as we look at the numbers, seven is John's favorite number. Remember back in his gospel, he had seven sermons and seven miracles. And the book of Revelation is saturated with sevens has 12. In the creation, we have 12 moons to every year. And then when the children of Israel come out of Egypt, we have the 12 tribes from the time of Jacob. And then we have, of course, at the time of the New Testament, the 12 apostles. So 12 is often God's order. And you see that a lot here. Anytime you square a number, you're perfecting it. So 12 squared, 144. The number seven is whole and complete. You cut it in half and you get three and a half. And so three and a half becomes a very important number as well. There's others that we'll talk about as we go along. The entire book of Revelation is also put together as a chiastic structure. Remember, that's the parallel poetry of ideas, where the first idea is the last idea, and the second idea is the second to last. And as you look as a bird's eye view across the whole 22 chapters of the book of Revelation, you find this beautiful chiastic structure, the warnings and the promises of Christ, second coming and judgment, and then the inaugural vision of Christ— the scrolls with the seven seals. And there we have the beautiful center part, which is the last days. It's the challenging destructions. And then when we come out, we see again the scrolls with seven seals, another vision of our Savior. And then it ends with the warnings and the promises of Christ's second coming and judgment again. I also made a chart to describe how John has divided up these periods of history. And it's fascinating to me to see the number of verses here. He has 201 verses, more than 10 times the number of verses on almost any other subject on our day and age. After the opening of the second seal, the great calamities before the Savior's return. That is where the focus of this book is. So you can either look at this chart here or my handout would be applied. But at the beginning, we've got a beautiful chapter one, four and five, where there's about 36 verses on the throne, the throne of God. And then we've got 51 verses over the next two chapters, chapters two and three, that describes the seven churches of Asia and the counsel that the Lord gives them. As far as a historical time reference goes, In the scriptures, we don't have this, but in the historical writings that date back to the second and third centuries after the Lord's death, we can read that John was put in a prison on the Isle of Patmos. And we can also read that Domitian, the Caesar at the time, was very antagonistic and furious. In fact, he tried to kill John numerous times. And in the records that are left, it says he even dipped him in a hot boiling oil and he did not die. And that's why he puts him on this prison island. And there were other prisoners there too, according to the records um, in in the Roman Empire, that this was an island where they were left to hopefully die. But that is not what happens to John. He, of course has this very significant vision, and it's similar to other prophets' visions when we read in part, but he has the responsibility, he has the call from God to write the whole thing out. If you talk to a biblical scholar, or you look online or read some commentaries, there's a lot of debate as to who is the author. But in modern revelation, we are told that the author is John, that it is the beloved disciple who wrote the gospel of John and the epistles of John, And whether or not he had um, assistants or scribes or people working with him, I don't know. But we believe that this vision was given to John, the revelator, who was also John, the beloved. But because he had promised the Lord that he would serve him, not only the days of his life, but until the Lord comes again, he has an extended time period on earth and he has an extended vision until timing of the end of the celestialized earth. Chapter 1 verse 4, John also identifies himself as being on the island of Patmos. And I mentioned a little bit earlier that this is apocalyptic literature, and they describe these horrific things that are going to happen at the end of time. But John's writing is so much more than that. It is filled with divine visions and information, and we can see God's hand through history It's one thing to read a history book to see the history of the world, but when God tells the story, it's focused on the most important thing in the history, which is the coming of our Savior, of Jesus of Nazareth's death and resurrection. Before we jump into the text, I'd like to go through the organization of our five chapters that we have for Come, Follow Me this week. According to Joseph Smith's Answers from God, the whole book is a chronological history of the earth, with four little interludes and an introduction or a a beginning message to these seven churches. So we open up with a vision of Christ, and then we have two chapters on the messages to the churches, and each of those messages have four parts. There's a description of Christ, a condemnation of the different churches, a challenge given to them, and a promise. And whether you're in the Ephesus branch or the Sardis branch or ever, you're going to get each one of those things. An identification of Christ, a condemnation, a challenge, and a promise. And it repeats and repeats. Then beautiful chapters 4 and 5 are a throne theophany, a study of the throne of God. And it's a temple vision with Heavenly Father and Christ accepting his call from the Father. We are introduced to 24 elders and four beasts. And in the King James, they're called beasts. I prefer other translations that refer to them as living beings. These are people who are serving God or animals who are serving God. In fact, the four beasts are a lion, an eagle, a man or an angel sometimes, or an ox. And then, of course, there's the Lamb of God on the throne. And these symbols, whether it's the double-edged sword or a star or the sun have got to be looked at in perspective of the symbols of that ancient world, the symbols that the Lord tells us about, and the symbols that fall into place with the plan of salvation. So we'll talk more about them when we get there. Revelation chapter 1 verse 1 has some significant Joseph Smith translation changes. The revelation of John, a servant of God. I love that. I'm so grateful we had that addition. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we are to serve him. We don't want to ever confuse who is the master and who is the servant. John, the beloved, was serving his God. It was given unto him of Jesus Christ to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. Now, if you ask me... The definition of shortly there is exaggerated since it's already been well over 2,000 years before some of these things come to pass. So I just have to pause and say the timing of the Lord is very different on Kolob than it is on the planet Earth. But it's also very true that every person here will meet their maker um, in the near future, that our life is but a passing, a quick moment. And that these things will come to us as we go from one estate to the next as well. Verse 1 in the KJV said that he sent and signified by his angel unto his servant John. Now this is interesting because um, the angel is the one who's acting like a guide through much of the vision. But towards the end, the Savior comes and talks to him and is his guide. So we get both in the vision. Verse 3 says... Blessed are they who read, and they who hear, and understand, and keep these things which are written. I love the fact that our Savior is um, sharing this information with us so that we can understand it. We can learn it. In, before... The Joseph Smith translation before section 77, before the temple, I think this would have been excruciingly difficult to understand. And that's why the commentaries come up with ideas like it's talking about Nero, it's talking about this, it's talking about that, rather than what we're taught by the Lord. So we are very blessed, but we need to hear it and understand it. It's written for our day. Joseph says, if the Lord has given you the keys to understand something, he will hold you responsible to know it. And that's the way I feel about the book of Revelation. John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Now that's modern day Turkey. So we're on the Western border of modern day Turkey. And he begins with the standard phrase, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, who is to come from the seven spirits before his throne. So he's already had one vision before he started writing this letter, uh, and he knows that he is to write it from the spirits that are sitting before the God. But I'm fascinated with the fact that Paul also served in Ephesus for three years. Do you remember back in the book of Acts, they describe his three apostolic missions to the Gentiles, and he was there for three years in Ephesus. But it doesn't appear that the two overlapped. But according to the history of this area, John came and lived in Ephesus and he brought with him the Lord's mother, Mary. And um, John was able to build up the church in this area after Paul had started. And these seven churches are part of his charge, and he is now going to include them in his congregation for this. Verse 5 reads, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of kings of the earth. You know, it's one of my favorite things to do when I'm studying the book of Revelation is to keep a record of the names of our Savior. I think John really knew him. If he is the one who's writing is the beloved apostle, like we believe, then he had a very close relationship and his vocabulary helps us understand who the Savior is. This is from the BLB translation to finish up verse 5. It's a very good literal translation. To the one loving us and releasing us from our sins through his blood. So he addresses it also to our Savior. To the one who is our mediator, our redeemer, the one who has suffered for our sins. I'm also writing. And then in verse 6 it reads, He hath made us kings and priests unto God his Father. Now, the Joseph Smith Translation editions are significant, and I've got them all written out in my handout, if you'd like to follow along, that should be attached to this video, or they're on Scripture Central in the archives. Chapter 1, verse 7 in the NIV reads, "'Look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples on earth will mourn because of him, so shall it be, amen.'" There's a series of visions in this letter, but I'm fascinated to remember that John the Beloved was the only member of the 12 that was mentioned at the cross. He saw him pierced, and he says, look, all of you, look, those of you that killed him, those of you that called to have him crucified, those of you that took part in that awful scene, can you see him now? Can you realize who he is? Are your blinders from your cultural damaged, taken off so that you can see this is the Messiah that you were looking for. You just didn't know that he was first coming as a suffering servant. The Lord continues on to introduce himself. I am Alpha and Omega, the mighty in the midst of the seven candlesticks. That's Revelation chapter one, verse eight, and also verse 13. Remember the seven candlesticks um, sometimes is translated as a seven branched candlestick. And that would be uh, significant because it looks like the menorah in the temple. It looks like the tree of life. You know, it's the, the branched candlestick that was in the holy place that represented the tree of life back in the Garden of Eden. But he's describing himself as if he were next to this candlestick or if he were next to these seven candlesticks. If seven represents complete and whole and a candlestick is a light, or if it's the menorah, it's the tree of life. Our Savior is the way back to the tree of life. It is through him that we can partake again of the tree of life without our sins. And it is the tree of life that has that fruit that is the love of God, that is more delightful and delicious than anything else. So we have all sorts of beautiful symbols as we connect this vision. Now, remember, I'm using a Book of Mormon vision then because the Lord says to Nephi, you have had the same vision that my apostle John is going to have, but you don't need to write all of it because I'm going to allow John to record it. So that's um, the reason why sometimes I tie the tree of life from Nephi and Lehi's vision to the book of Revelation. Verse 12 to 16 continues on, I turned and I saw seven golden lampstands and among them was someone like the son of man, dressed in a robe, a golden sash, The hair on his head was white like wool. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze. You know, every time we hear of someone's description of the throne, we hear the voice is like running waters and the brightness and the light is just significant. You can read about visions of the throne in Isaiah chapter six or Ezekiel or, you know, many prophets recorded their vision of the Lord and there's a lot of parallels between them. I also think it's significant as we talk about John's vision of the throne of God in heaven to realize that God has a temple in heaven and that the meeting place of the heavenly temple and the earthly temple we are just patterned after the heavenly temple. And so when we see these things in the heavenly temple, we can you can probably spot some of them in the Mosaic law in the temple that John knew about. Verse 19, he's immediately commanded to write, even while he's still in the vision. Go find your quill. Go get some parchment. I want you to record this. And he does, fortunately. So these seven stars are described. We've already talked about the number seven, how it's many, many times, and what it meant. But what is the star? We're told about that one in verse 20. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks, which thou sawest, are the seven churches. Okay, this is a little different now. The church members are being represented before the throne of God, and angels are ministering to the church members who are also communing with God. This is a powerful message if we liken it to ourselves. The seven stars are also described as angels. Remember the word angel is a messenger usually an angel of God or is Malach Yahweh, a messenger of Jehovah. And they're not only messengers, but they're servants of God. So we have the stars and the angels and the servants and the churches all being represented up here in heaven. As we open now to chapter two and three, we've got a message to each of these seven churches. I've got a map and a message here that is consistent with each one. As I mentioned earlier, they give a beautiful title and definition of Christ in each of these, Then a condemnation, a challenge, and a promise. And in John W. Welch's book, Charting the New Testament, he has this all organized very nicely. You can access it online through our archives by just typing in Charting the New Testament, and you'll be able to see the same chart that I've got here on my slide. The first message is to the church of Ephesus, but I just have to testify that the Lord really knew his churches. I spent a long time studying culture of these different churches and what they were famous for and what their communities and their towns and their geography was like, and I was blown away how consistent what we know about them, um, their political background and physical allocation is with what the Lord describes. And so even though we're just going to touch on them briefly, I've got a lot more information on my handout if you'd like to read it. Chapter 2 reads, I know thy works and thy labors and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. Nevertheless, now he's talking to the church in Ephesus, so they had had the gospel for several years by now. I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. And their first love would have been their relationship with the Lord. We're not talking about a girlfriend or a, a boyfriend or a spouse. We that that happened in Christianity, but it wasn't part of much of the other Greco-Roman-Judaic culture at the time. This is the love of God, and that you're wanting to serve him, and that you're willing to enter into the waters of baptism so that you can be loyal to him. He continues on in verse 5, I will remove thy candlestick out of its place, except thou repent. So that's the challenge. And he says, you know, you guys are almost like the Nicolaitans. This is chapter 2, verse 6, and he mentions them again in 15. You know, the wealth of the world, the physical problems with materialism, that you're not focusing on the things that matter the most. This letter, the book of Revelation, fits into our day and age so well. As we look at these seven churches, we can see the worldliness around us Creeping in, and it's changing our focus. It's changing what we wear and how we behave and how we spend our time. And he's begging them to go back to your first love, be passionate about your love of God and your service of God, and and stop all this flirtatious with things of the world. He also gives them a promise in verse seven I give to eat of the tree of life. Now, the tree of life is a fascinating topic. It's all over scripture and ancient writings. It's almost every country, even people that aren't from the biblical tradition. Like the Egyptians used the lotus flower as their example of the tree of life. This idea that we can have immortality, that we can live again, is promised here by the Lord to those people who repent. If we repent, we will be able to receive this sweet fruit, this fruit, which is the love of God. The next church he addresses in chapters verses 8 to 11, is Smyrna. And he says in verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. And he's so good about saying just because economically you don't feel like you've got the resources you'd like, your spirits are strong, your spirits are rich, and that is far more important than any um, pennies in your pocket. He also warns them and gives them a prophecy that they will have 10 days of tribulation and then life. Now, I mentioned um, that Domitian had persecuted John ever since the time of Nero. So 20 years earlier, we have had Caesars who are doing a lot of persecution. It used to just be local little bits in the early book of Acts. But by this point in Christian history uh, is when the poor Christian martyrs were taken into the lions uh, to be in the arenas and things like that in Colosseums. This was a very Um, trying time. And only the most devout were able to endure the physical persecution. I feel like our persecution now is more emotional and spiritual, and theirs was so physical. He also talks to the church in Pergamos. Now, this is fascinating. The archaeologists who have dug up this area have found 200,000 volumes of parchment in their ancient libraries. And the Lord talks to them in such appropriate words in chapter two, verse 12 to 17. He talks about the empirical cult of the Jews and he denounces them. He says in verse 17, to him that overcometh will I give to eat the hidden manna and will him have a white stone and on the stone, a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Do you remember that a bowl of manna was saved from the wilderness of Sinai for those 40 years of walking and it was placed inside the Ark of the Covenant and it never went bad. You know, the the God we worship was a God who would feed you and take care of you and nourish you. It's a beautiful image. And it's also an example that we believe in a God of miracles. That is usually referred to as the hidden manna, but I think there are other implications to it because he's talking about a new name that's written on the white stone. And as I mentioned earlier, Joseph Smith as well as many other records have given examples that the early Christians had their initiatory endowment ceremonies they knew the higher law and they were willing to covenant with God chapter 2 verses 18 to 29 talk about firedra and the Jezebel and chapter 2 verse 26 to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end I will give that one the morning star And he mentions the morning star here, and he mentions it in chapter 22. So this beautiful image of our savior, another title for our Lord and God, the morning star. Chapter three continues on with the same parallel four messages to each church. And to Sardis, he says in verse one of chapter three, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about you are about to die. I don't think he's talking physically. I think he's talking spiritually. You know, you are losing your faith because you care more about the worldly thoughts than the Lord's thoughts. But then he promises them. He's encouraging them. He says in verse five, he that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. You know, this becomes a very important image throughout the rest of this book. The white raiment is the purity of the saints. Next Church of Philadelphia, chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. The words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. Now remember, in the ancient world, there are not very many things that are under lock and key. Uh, and the key was hand-carved. It was usually quite large and bulky and wooden. The locks were also wooden. They were also hand-carved. And anyone who was holding a key on their neck or around their, uh, their uh, on a chain um, was someone of great importance, and you needed to give due respect to them because this was a very rare thing to see. And so he who holds the key of David is our God. He is the greatest key holder that we know. Verse 11 of chapter 3 says, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. You know, those of us who have entered into covenants need to follow these same good counsels that were given by the Lord through John the Beloved. Chapter 3, verse 20 in the NIV reads, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. This reminds me back to Liberty Jail when the Lord taught Joseph, many are called, I'm standing at the door and knocking, but only those who open the door will I be allowed to come in, but I will come in, and I can have the indwelling. Remember, that's the image from the ancient text of the Shekhinah, this pillar of fire, the, and that's why I think we're called the baptism of fire. The spirit is representing an indwelling of our God. Verse 31 talks more about God with these open doors. It says to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. We see a beautiful example of God opening doors. In chapter four, verse one, it says that John looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven. Now, some people place this with the message to the churches. Some people place it at the chapter change onto the next subject, but I just want to remind you that in the early Christian church, we have beautiful mosaics of God opening doors, of opening the heavens. And um, here's one from Ravenna, Italy, fourth, fifth century, sixth uh, century as well. I don't know the the churches that are built there cover several hundred years, but God's hand is coming through the clouds in a beautiful manner, to touch those down below, and it's behind a curtain as he's coming through the clouds as if it were um, just in another room. It's really a beautiful image here of God opening doors for us and opening veils, and anytime you see God's hand near the veil, I always think of Christ's death, where the veil of the temple was rent, and the temple separated out the holy place and the holy of holies so that we could all return to God. Chapter 4 then moves on to the throne of God, and this is just a beautiful description. I mentioned earlier that a lot of people had this throne theophany, and I'll just name a few. Enoch, Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Stephen, and those are all in the Bible, and there are more, and if you look at a restored scripture, there's even more. Lehi, Nephi, Jacob, Alma, brother of Jared, Moroni, Joseph, Sidney, Oliver, You know, just keep going. There are so many. And in verse 2, he said that John was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven. Now, in the Mosaic tabernacle and in the early temples of Solomon and Zerubbabel, the holy of holies was the throne room. They saw the Ark of the Covenant in both the tabernacle and in Solomon's temple as the throne of God. And the mercy seat, the top cover, was God's place to sit. And so as he is looking into heaven and he sees a throne room, it's often depicted as part of that temple, the Holy of Holies. Verse three says, he that sat was to look upon like jasper and sardine stone. And there was a rainbow around about the throne in the sight of emerald. And around about the throne, this is verse 4 now, there were 4 and 20 seats, and upon the seats were 4 and 20 elders sitting. Well, this is one of those verses that is so helpful to have some understanding and texture who they were. They're dressed in white, verse 4 says, and they had crowns of gold on their head, but we are so blessed to know that these represent the seven churches. They're elders from those churches, and they have been able to Um, maintain their testimonies before um, they passed away, and in heaven now they are before the throne of God. So, these are probably people that John knew and served with. Verse 5 says, the seven lampstands of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So, we've got lampstands, we've got people, and we've got these elders, In section 77, Joseph says, now, what are these things surrounding the altar? Who are they? (laughs) They all fit in. And he was told in verse 5, these are the elders whom John saw, and the elders were faithful. Before we leave this section about the seven-branched lampstand, I also want to remind you that in the early Christian artwork, sometimes they have Christ hanging on the tree of life that it was he who made it possible for us to return to the presence of the Lord, go back to the paradisiacal glory, and enter into the Lord's presence without our sins. It is he who allowed that. So this this tree of life image with the candles are are really important. Chapter 4, verse 5 reads, from the throne came lightnings and rumblings and thunders. That's the new rendition. I want to tell you a little about this. Years and years ago, probably 30 years ago now, um, a group of wonderful biblical scholars at Brigham University decided that they wanted to write their own translation of the New Testament. And over time, we received permission from the church leaders. And right now, coming out over the last decade have been these wonderful volumes. Each book of the New Testament has its own volume of commentary with its own translation and we refer to this translation as the new rendition. And I love it, especially in the book of Revelation. The throne of God is described with a lot of light. Do you remember back to Moses' tabernacle when the Shekhinah was a pillar of light by night over the tabernacle? And it's also there at Moses' dedicatory prayer of the temple that the Lord received it unto him. And we also saw it in Kirtland where it came down like a fire and the neighbors thought it was on fire and they brought their buckets of water. And of course, it was just the Spirit of God. There was no smoke, nothing was burned. Chapter 4, verse 6 says, in front of the throne, There was what looked like a sea of glass or clear as crystal, that's the M-I-V. But Joseph, when he asked about this, was told it is the earth in its sanctified, immortal, and eternal state. So we'll be reintroduced to this at the end of the book of Revelation when they talk about it again. Continuing on, we learn more about these four living creatures or beasts. Round about the throne were four living creatures, like a lion, an ox, a face like a man, or a flying eagle. And when Joseph asked about them, he was told in section 77, verse 2 and 3, they are figurative expressions to represent the glory of the classes or beings in their destined order, in the enjoyment of their eternal felicity. So we've got animals in heaven. We have the classes of, of flying animals. We have the classes of domesticated animals. We have the classes of humans. And each of them has a representative at the throne of God who's carrying out these work. this work. It's, it's really quite powerful. Also, these four images come from a little bit of consistency throughout the rest of the New Testament it came to identify the four Gospels, and each one represented another evangelist who wrote the four Gospels. So they used these symbols in other places. Joseph also wrote on this in a sermon in Nauvoo. It was April 8th, 1843. And he said, John heard the words of the beast giving glory to God and understood them. God who made the beast could understand every language spoken by them. So there will be an ability for animals to speak in heaven. This is really exciting. He says though that the animals are full of eyes before and behind, that's chapter four, verse six. So when Joseph asks about that, he's told that the eyes are representative of light and full of knowledge, that's section 77, verse four. So this omniscience, this ability to see without the veil harnessing our second estate, these people in heaven can see before and after. And even the animals that are there, these four living creatures that are there, has this ability to see. Interestingly, each of the living creatures also have six wings. They're set in three pairs. And when Joseph asked about it, he was told that the wings represent the power to act in section 77, verse 4. Do you remember back in Isaiah chapter 6, there were two wings covering the eyes and two wings covering the feet, you know, as if it were power to see, power to move. You know, it's really fun to put together some of these symbols and just explore in your, in your heart and mind what they could represent. Chapter 4 verse 10 says, the elders cast their crowns before the throne. You are worthy, O Lord, our God, is verse 11. And all of us need to do that every night as we kneel down and take off our worldly signs and bow before our lord it's a beautiful image for all of us chapter 5 now begins by saying that then i meaning john saw a scroll in the right hand of the one seated on the throne it had writing on both sides and it was sealed with seven seals and i saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to break the seals open of the scroll now all this you have to know a little bit of historical background for you know the seal is um, affidavit that this was written accurately, that it was, it was witnessed, and that no one else is to open it except for the person that it's addressed to, or, or except for a judge. And they may open it, and they may read it, but no one else can read it. So we see a lot about these seals in history, but there's even more uh, significance as we look at them spiritually. Of course, there are seven, so it's whole, it's complete, and it is God who is finishing them. He will be our judge. He will be the one to open it, but John doesn't know that yet, and so he's crying, and in verse 2 of chapter 5, it says, who is worthy to open the scroll by breaking its seals, because no one is found to be the judge of doing it. So, we continue to read, and in verse 5, it says, do not weep. The angel's talking to John. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed to open the scroll and its seven seals. So we assume that it is God, Elohim, who is now handing the scroll to the Lion of Judah. And isn't this interesting that some of the symbols of our Savior are a lion coming from the patriarchal blessing that Jacob gave to his son, Judah. He uses this image of a Lion of Judah, but he's also the Lamb. And the Lion of Judah will lie down with the Lamb of God when he comes again. But at this time, we have this image of a very strong, powerful man, a Lion of the Lord. And he will completely open up these seals. And when Joseph prayed about it, he was told in section 77, verse 6, that this book that John saw contains the revealed will, mysteries, and the works of God, the hidden things of this earth during the 7,000 years of its temporal existence. So it's about 1,000 years to each of these periods, starting with Adam, 1,000 years from Adam to Noah and Enix in that time period. And then we have 1,000 years from Noah to Abraham, and then 1,000 years from Abraham to King David, and then to the Savior. So there's the 4,000 years before, and then the 4,000 years after would be um, 1,000 AD, 2000 AD, and then the millennium, and then the celestialized earth. So that is the history that we were told by Joseph that this meant. But they wouldn't have been books like we know them. A book is a scroll. You know, they, they kept their writings in different ways since they're not, the printing press hasn't been developed yet. Verse 7 in section 77 explains a little more about the seven seals. It says, the first seal contains the things of the first thousand years, the second also the second thousand years. So with every seal being opened, we're getting a new part of the story. And in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, it says, having seven horns and seven eyes, which were the spirits of God who came forth to the earth. And Joseph Smith changes this. We see this Lamb of God on the throne, but instead of having complete, a number of whole and complete, Joseph, who may not understand that symbolism, adds 12 horns and 12 eyes, because He knows of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the Lamb, and he sees that as more consistent. I don't know what John originally said, but I can appreciate that Joseph is trying to say, no, the Lamb of God is is filled with the order of God, and we can see him from the creation all the way down. Verse 8 reads, each one having a harp and a golden bowl is filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, we also read that twice in the book of Psalms, that the incense represents the prayer. Of, and that's why in the holy place, you have the incense altar. It's a small table. The smoke was to constantly rise. But I'm thrilled to hear there's musical instruments in heaven as well. And it sounds like the harp is going to be one of them. Verse 9 reads in the MIV, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood, you purchased For God, persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests who serve our God, and they will reign on earth. It's a beautiful description of how those in heaven can praise the Lord, and I hope we as messengers of God and disciples of Christ can do the same here on earth. Chapter 5, verse 13 reads, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the lamb. For those of you that are familiar with Handel's Messiah, I hope that rung a bell as you can almost hear the beautiful praise that was put to music in these verses here. May we, in all that we do, fall before our Lord and praise and worship him. I hope that the book of Revelation can continue to open up and have more meaning as we use the keys that are given us in the restoration. I also want to testify that I believe that Jesus is not only the Lamb of God, but he is also the Lion of Judah, and he is the great and last sacrifice for which we are all eternally grateful. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.